Hello, everybody. My name is Mike. And I'm Greg. And together we are Robots from Tomorrow, a twice-weekly podcast appearing at the Eisner-nominated MultiversityComics.com. Every week we take about 15 minutes to check out books hitting the shelves on Wednesday that we're most looking forward to. We also have long-form discussions about books we're excited for, both old and new. These episodes have included works like Jaime Hernandez's Love Bunglers and Katsuhiro Otomo's epic Akira. And if that's not enough, we also do creator interviews. Some of the people we've had on the show have been Tom Scioli, Paul Pope, Leila Del Duca, and John Workman. So that's a lot of content for everybody. Please subscribe to Robots from Tomorrow on iTunes or Stitcher so you never miss a thing. Robots from Tomorrow has hours of comics-focused entertainment week in and week out. And now, back to your show. You're listening to Ink Studs, and our guest this week is Brian Lee O'Malley, whose new book should just be out now, Seconds. Um, This interview is kind of a follow-up to uh, the road trip that Brandon Graham and I just went on to LA. Um, I realized as I was kind of prepping for this, why didn't we do an interview with Brian in LA considering uh, you joined us for that live talk? I don't know what our problem was for not scheduling one, so I'm sorry we didn't. That's alright. I'm glad to be here. Uh, I'm just glad to be alive, really. That's good. Live life, man. YOLO. We hadn't, we hadn't read his book then, too. That's, That's true. Th- you didn't get us a copy of your book. It's your your fault. Um, no, it's a wonderful book. And I should mention, uh, Brandon Graham is joining me here as well as a fellow interviewer. Um, thank you, Brandon, for coming on, too. And we're all, yeah. here, in the, we're all here in the historic Inkstud studio. Yes, which is my basement about four feet from the cat litter box. Yeah, it smells. Yeah, actually, it kind of does right now, but that's that's um, the problem when you have two cats. Uh, seconds, um, congrats on on the book. Um, many years in the making. Thank you. Um, now, this book was it something you had in mind um, that you wanted to do while wrapping up Scott Pilgrim? Yeah, it's something I had in mind for a long time, uh, for almost 10 years. Um, I kind of came up with it right after finishing the first Scott Pilgrim book, which was uh, late 2004. Um, I worked in a restaurant for a while because I couldn't afford uh, to live on comic money. Um, so, I, yeah, I had this job for like about four or five months uh, where I would, I was a food runner and I would run food (laughs) (laughs) um that that means like you take the food from the kitchen out to the to the tables like you're you're not a server because you're not actually taking orders from from humans you're just kind of like a delivery person so you're shuttling stuff back and forth so you kind of like see what's going on all over the restaurant but you're kind of invisible at the same time because you don't actually you're not really supposed to interact with anyone you just pick up food and drop it off. It's like a perfect research job. Yeah, so I, I like, you know, I did that while I was writing the second Scott Pilgrim book. I was just sitting there with my sketchbook most of the time in the corner, like drawing Scott Pilgrim characters, writing ideas for that. But meanwhile, I was kind of like absorbing this like restaurant world. And um, yeah, I kind of always knew I wanted to do a restaurant story. And I came up with the general premise like pretty much in those days. And uh I sat on it for years. You had you had a million ideas kind of while working on Scott Pilgrim, right? Well, a million 
A million. Is an exaggeration. Uh, but, you know, I had a few. Um, and, yeah, it was like, at, at times it was like frustrating to be stuck in one thing, uh, in, you know, in Scott Pilgrim and, and wanting to finish it, but also realizing it was going to take me years and years and wanting to just, like, diversify. Um, but eventually I just buckled down and did the whole thing and waited. Was there something about Seconds that, that was stronger of an idea than, or, or felt more like something you wanted to get to immediately than the, uh, all the other, other different ideas that you were thinking about while working on Scott Pilgrim? Yeah, but I can't really quantify it. Like, it, it felt really urgent to me, but for no real reason. Uh, it, like, I was really thinking about it a lot in sort of like the mid to late 2000s. Um, I wrote down a lot of ideas for it between like 2006 and 2009, and I was really, I was freaking out about getting old. I guess like I was in Katie's place, like I was like turning 30-ish, and um, I was just like, oh my god, I have to tell this story, like, and I, but I think I was like, I was not ready to even tell the story yet, I was just kind of figuring it out, and then you know, by the time I, I started writing it, I was actually, like, over 30, and I was kind of, like, ready to do this, like, complex, kind of ambitious story. Did you have a kind of a different understanding of the characters between those two points? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think Katie was always going to be... No, actually, I think Katie started out as a younger character, like, she was supposed to be, like, 26 or something, because I was probably closer to my age when I first came up with it. Um, by the time I started, I was probably like 32. So just sticking her at like the point of turning 30 made the most sense because that's kind of like a big turning point for everyone, and it's it's relatable. Even if you're not 30 yet, or even if you're over 30, you kind of like know that that's like a moment in time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was really interesting for me to read this, and and in a way that Scott Pilgrim really isn't. It it feels like you're taking all of these. It's so comic book and so manga, but it's has all these nods that are real life things that you don't normally see in people's comics. I think a lot of times those get you know most comics this style get stuck in teenage years. Mm-hmm. And reading it just the um, like people's people's sexuality, the way you handle it incredibly casually, the way adults would, it was really right. an interesting point. Like if somebody is if somebody's gay, it's obvious in the story, but you don't make a an X Men event out of it. And and things like having to handle a restaurant and the way the woman it was interesting. Um, were you were there any specific? I'm I'm kind of rambling here. Were there any specific manga that you were looking at that that you felt captured this kind of feel? Because it does really it feels super Canadian and super. Um, uh, it feels a lot realer than than most comics I've read in this style. Yeah, I mean it's like this totally crazy like fairy tale world, but it's like. It's grounded in mundanity, I guess. Um, I'm trying to think what comics were an influence on it. Um, yeah, I was really into Natsume Ono. Um, her layouts were a big influence on me, and, and just kind of her... Like, I think she approaches the world kind of in that way. Like, stuff is just kind of more mundane in her world. Is that the woman that did the Office comic? Uh, I'm not sure which one you mean, you mean, but she's done a few like restaurant comics too, actually. I haven't read a lot of her stuff. I just have a few books. And I had a few in Japanese before, before they started getting translated, so I just kind of would stare at them. 
and not really know what was happening, but I just thought they were beautiful. Great. Yeah, it has a much more um, timeless feel than your other work, too. Was that something you thought about at all? Like, not dating things? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, there is, like, modern stuff. There's, like, iPhones and stuff, because um, I feel like that's important to, to grapple with in this day and age. But, you know, I was also looking at, like, the Moon Troll books and, um, and like, Donjon and stuff like that. Like, um, yeah, I kind of wanted to give it this more, like, European fairy tale feeling, uh, which which is, like, that sort of timeless thing to me. It's just, like, this fantasy world, that, but it's it's also, like, very concrete. Right. Um, is, it, is it set in Toronto as well? No. It's set in, like, a an amalgamation of many places. It's, like, just this made-up fairy tale town. Like, okay. it has some of, like, Halifax and some, like, some stuff from, like, England. And, and um, like, since Jason was helping me draw it, there's, like, streets from Portland. There's streets from different towns I've lived in. There's, like, a few nice. houses from L.A. And it's just kind of all over the place, intentionally. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, something about you, like there's a there's a couple nods to Scott Pilgrim characters in the background of things, and I was I was almost reading it like a Sin City book that was happening at the same time, overlapping. Yeah, no, it's like it it's definitely like a, a more fanciful world than Scott Pilgrim. It almost feels more grounded than Scott Pilgrim, though. Yeah, and part of that is because it's more of an adult story. I think it just yeah. it, it even though the world is kind of visually a little bit more fanciful, it's like it had to be really concrete, and, and I really wanted to define the space. That was kind of one of the one of the big challenges I set out for this book was just to like have this restaurant feel like a real viable place that you'd like think of. Like I just, you know, there's always places in like books and movies that you like you always remember like as if they're a real place. And I wanted to do something like that. Was keeping kind of restaurant continuity something that you had to work? Like, did you make maps at, at all for it? Yeah, I did. I made floor plans um, and and stuff. But, you know, as as the book goes on, like, the restaurant kind of, like, evolves, and we kind of, like, throw the floor plan out the window. Um, I like that, but that's something that you're aware of when reading it. Like, you talk about the length between, like, her room and the kitchen changing. Uh, yeah. That was really fun to read, and something that, like, if you hadn't established it so clearly, I don't think would have worked at all. Yeah, that, I mean, that's why it was so important to just, like, really establish the space and like I, early on I have that spread that's like overhead of uh, the whole kitchen and like I just wanted to, to be very like solid and like part of that was like getting Jason Fisher to to help me flesh out the backgrounds like which adds so much like concreteness to the world his art is um, a lot more detailed than yours um, and I'm wondering about that choice of like finding specific things that would like have that kind of jfish feel to it like some of the food is very kind of yeah i mean and that's like that's like a manga thing or like you know it's like scott mcleod thing too it's like and i'm always like i i try to do that to varying degrees in scott pilgrim like i think volume four has the most detailed backgrounds that i did all by myself it just took a really long time Mm -hmm. um so it was just it was nice to have an assistant to to, to flesh it out, like, so I could, like, because just telling the story, like, took such a long time, and, like, so much, like, it's, it's a really complicated story, so I wanted to really be able to concentrate on that, and not just, like, spend two years, like, just inking wood tiles and stuff. 
Right. It's interesting. Oh, something I wanted to ask about it. It was just a total like Jayfish thing. Is is there's a there's a scene where Katie goes to buy a burger. I was mm-hmm. He drew the burger because he's kind of uh, he's done lots of zines about burgers and is very burger obsessed. Yeah, he's like the burger guy. So um, yeah, the burger was already in the story. Like, or it was that scene was drawn, but I was just like, I got him to draw the burger. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> but the other food, I assume, is is mostly you. No, he actually drew almost all the food. Um, you know, I would just like kind of rough it in, and he would kind of go do research. The only one I really did myself was the the one dish we see her cook. Okay, um, nice. The like rabbit rabbit dish, because um, like a friend actually came over and cooked that, and I took all this reference photography, and um, so I I think I penciled that one pretty pretty solidly for the most part. Like I would just like sketch in a plate with some scribbles on it, and he would flesh out all the food. And that's where I was kind of referring to, like, kind of letting him kind of go to his strengths. Yeah, exactly. And then, of course, later on, like, we get into the kind of more monstery stuff. Like, he really went to town on that stuff. Yeah. Because um, there's kind of a difference between just having an assistant that can kind of ape your style and picking someone specific who can kind of add an additional ingredient. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was more of a complimentary thing rather than just like a con- continuation of what I was doing on my own. Now tell me, you said the, the, the complexity of the story, and I'm wondering about kind of approaching um, this as kind of a solid uniform work within itself and kind of having to stick to the limits of kind of a novel-esque aspect as kind of contrary to Scott Pilgrim where it was just kind of more sprawling and epic. I can't believe I said epic, sorry. <laughs> it was an epic of epic epicness. Yeah. Didn't the you know? It's a lot tighter in this one. Like, you can't just, you know, give someone a one-up life or whatever. Yeah, I mean, Scott Pilgrim was more freeform, both in the rules and in the storytelling. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's something I set out to do in seconds, is, like, have a contained world and system and, and, um, and I wanted to to be like, I wanted it to feel like a novel, like an adult, like work of fiction, as opposed to just like something that's just, I'm kind of like spinning out of my head as I go on. So yeah, it 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 definitely like took a lot of planning, because it is like, it, I mean, I think it reads pretty like breezy and straightforward, but planning all the, all the like twists and turns of the story and like how how the kind of like magical system works like it took a long time it took like a, a lot of math <laughs> that's the interesting is um you really there's a lot of rules in this mm-hmm. book like in kind of where you're talking about kind of with the kind of freeformness of scott pilgrim this is very much rules and every kind of choice you make with the story has to follow along with the kind of the rules that you set for yourself within it yeah, and then that's like the that's the theme of the story, and it's like part of the construction of the story too. It's like we set out all these rules, and she ends up breaking all the rules, and then like everything goes to hell. Um, but like I had to write the rules and stick to my own rules and understand my own rules, and also like I had to like count how many fucking mushrooms she has and like how many she has after she uses this one, and like. I was just like keeping track of stuff, like a tally, like on every page of the book, and like it was, um, it was more complicated than it probably seems in the final reading. I, I, I got the feeling it was it was pretty complicated. 
Yes. <laughs> um, now, one of the big elements of the story is it really takes on these kind of folklore elements. Um, and did, was that something you'd had an interest of? Was there specific things you're referencing? Yeah, I mean, the it's sort of like this, like, Russian or, like, Eastern European folklore um, that I think at first... Or the the thing that stands out in my mind the most is this video computer game that I played when I was a kid, um, Quest for Glory Four. It was like set in like this Romanian kind of world, and uh, it had like the house spirit, and it had like just just all these like little things that would be like kind of quests within the game. Um, and that setting like really kind of spoke to me for some reason. And then I was never really able to find a lot of actual like academic writing on it or anything like that. Um, or like a you know a collection of stories about whatever folklore, but um, you know I just find like bits and pieces here and there. So I kind of just set out to make something inspired by that folklore, but like kind of from whole cloth. Like I was just thinking of like Miyazaki and like Totoro. Um, I just wanted to to kind of differentiate it, and like I really actually wanted to come up with a, my own made up word for the house spirits and I just never really got around to it. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, I was wondering how much they're based off of uh like Japanese spirits in reading. Yeah, like n not at all. I know nothing about Japanese spirits. No, it was more based on like the Russian like Domovoy. Okay. I was thinking about how the the spirit character reminded me of like something from like a Korean horror movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, visually there's some of that. Yeah, it's probably nice that it's um not particularly uh, specific to any culture that we're all guessing at different things. Yeah, and it's like even my editor was guessing at different things, and he at, at one point he really wanted me to like pin it down, like and to say like that Hazel was like a certain ethnicity, and I just I never wanted to do that because that's like the, I, the, the editor of this book. Sorry, who was the editor on this book? Uh, his name's Ryan Doherty, and um, oh. he mostly does fiction and nonfiction, not not comics. Okay, cool. Yeah, because that was something. Uh, something I, you mentioned earlier about it making it, trying to make it feel more like a, a novel. Were there were there books that you felt like were an influence in this? Non comics. Novel novels. Um, novels. There, like I, I feel like the two biggest ones um, were from my childhood. That like books that I've read again and again since I was a kid. Um, uh, what's it called? Uh, Green Features of Tycho by William Sleater. Mm -hmm. Uh, he was like, you know, this weird sci-fi author, like young person sci-fi author. Like when I read his books now, like they're very dry. Like he doesn't write characters very well, but his ideas were always really interesting. Um, Green Futures of Tycho is about this kid who finds like kind of a time machine, and he starts going to the future to see what's going to happen to him. But every time he goes, it changes and gets worse and worse, and it's it's because he's using the time machine. Um, so that was like a big inspiration. It was just a book that I read again and again ever since I was like in grade three. Now you script before you get into the drawing, right? Uh, I didn't this time, but I did do a very detailed outline. And I'm curious how much the story had changed over the years from your initial idea to um, kind of how much came out through the end. I mean, it, it changed a lot, or it evolved a lot. Um, like, if you go back and read, like, my 
initial notes, it probably does sound a lot like the book, but it just it had to go through a lot of iterations before I could kind of tell the story adequately, I guess. Um, and yeah, I mean, I worked on the outline for the story for a long time. Um, but then eventually, because I did always do a full script for Scott Pilgrim's, I, I just wanted to compose more on the comics page. So um, I just broke down this detailed outline. It was like maybe 25 or 30 pages long. I broke it down from there into pages and just started writing dialogue and composing panels like in the art stage, mm -hmm. in the thumbnail stage, I guess. It's really interesting to me how a lot of the shapes of the pages seem to be really uh, malleable in the way you lay out panels. Like you'll just leave panels off and just put a, a sentence of text in there. And it makes the, especially looking at it a PDF the way I read it, um, mm -hmm. it, it just makes the air, like different pages seem a lot bigger or smaller. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, the margins actually stay pretty consistent, um, but I I will, like leave a lot of negative space in the panel layouts, which um, I don't I don't think that was like inspired by anything. I think it was just it's just something I've been thinking about and playing with. Like I, I had this like theory of like leaving or um, treating panel layouts like blocks of text and having like indentations and. Um, or like when a scene ends, I'll just trail off and like leave the rest of the page blank. Um, so I played with that like here and there in this book. Yeah, yeah, I like that a lot. Um, with the having a colorist on this, um, with your other books originally being done for black and white, um, how did that kind of infect or kind of work with the story as far as like uh, how much control over the color? Um, within the story did you have that was not a sentence I'm sorry. <laughs> that was all over the place yeah tell <laughs> me about color and book I know I know what you mean um well the thing is it started out not as a full color book it was gonna be um, just a spot color and I wanted to do it in that um, Brandon will know what I'm talking about that like kinda like orangey red that like old manga would use mm -hmm. oh yeah yeah so it's like orange and like a screen tone um, and some of it still feels like that yeah, so that was kind of like, that was how I did the first half of the book. Like, I did like 150 pages, and I kind of like roughly shaded a bunch of it. And I always figured I would get someone to help me finalize that, because I'm terrible at like two-tone shading. But um, around that point, like, I injured myself, and I had to take a break. And um, I think the first two um, Color Scott Pilgrims came out around then. And like, once I started like kind of just... Once those were in my life, I was like, oh, wow, we like really have to do this book in full color. So um, I sent what I had to Nathan in sort of like the rough like two-tone version. And I just, he, he used that kind of as a basis. Um, and that, by that point, we had done, I think, three or four Scott Pilgrims. It must have been between the fourth and fifth that he colored this. So um, it was a huge task for him. But he like, he really nailed it and it, it was like not not a lot of revisions not a lot of he'll say it was a lot but i mean <laughs> we would go over <laughs> it and over it and it's like you know it's 320 pages so it's a lot of coloring but like he would do self-motivated coloring where he would be like oh i want to change the color of one thing i mean he would say this to himself and he would go back and color it on like 190 pages like one item right and not even tell me and i would look at the pages the next day and they would be like all changed so, like, he was just really super invested in it, which um, made everything a lot easier. Yeah, it's really 
it's really nice in this how much the color is part of the storytelling. Like like uh, you know, Katie's hair and the mushrooms like stand out in this like this this orange red, and uh, and there's so much limited palette stuff that works so well. Uh, it was really weird for me because I actually read through it assuming it was going to be limited palette and then you hit full color pages and it's like oh wow our, our color becomes such a big part of it where you know the way the way snow is done it's really interesting to me where it's just a total lack of color or black line even yeah 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 there's like certain passages in this book that the color in them just kills me um, and a lot of that was just like first try he would just nail it like there's this one sequence where um, where things are getting really hairy for Katie and like there's like this page where there's like a dark stormy sky and then she's like going through these dreams and she wakes up in the middle of the night and it's like dark bedroom and then she goes to sleep and then she wakes up again and everything's like this weird eerie pink color mm-hmm. right. and then she wakes up again and it's like normal and it's like blue sky and like snow and it looks really cold and like clean so um, yeah like he was just like killing it and I was like just so happy seeing these pages every day does he draw as well? Um, I don't know I'm always I'm always fascinated by that because uh, you know seeing how people that are so invested in color treat their own work. Yeah. Um. So with that, you kind of had a little bit of kind of ideas in mind, but you really let um, Nathan kind of go full hog. In a lot of ways, to just kind of stretch how he could. Yeah, I mean, yeah, especially having done four volumes of Scott Pilgrim already, like those had been especially the first couple of volumes, there's a lot more back and forth um, as we were kind of figuring out the look. Yeah. But by that point, we kind of had a shorthand. And he knew I wanted the red to be the dominant color. Because um, we always do that in the Scott program. Each each volume has its own, like, specific dominant color, um, which is usually, like, the, col- the cover color. So, like, volume three has a lot of pink. Um, so, yeah, like, it, it just kind of started to come naturally for both of us, I think. Now, it's, just been, it's been an ongoing collaboration, which is really rewarding. Hmm. And the other collab with this, which you mentioned, is you got Dustin Harbin, and he did um, hand lettering for this, right? Yeah. There's some font stuff, though, too, because there's, like, the list. Yeah, that... there, there's, like, some font stuff that we decided to leave in as fonts, like, just, just for, you know, typographic reasons. Like Was emails. that... Would you do layouts in... Like, would you would you pencil with with lettering placement or layouts because it does seem to work so uh, seamlessly? Yeah, actually, I did. Like, I I thumbnailed the whole book at full size. Like, I would just do the panels and do the lettering, and like I said, that's how I was writing the dialogue. So I would just start typing into Photoshop, and and then place the balloons, and then kind of work the page around the text. Um, it was like a pretty intuitive process for me, and a lot of the dialogue stayed pretty much the same. Hmm. Um, but yeah, like the lettering was pretty much the final step. The, so, did you see lettering on paper or on or on digitally? He um, he was lettering on paper and scanning it, and then he placed it himself. Okay. Yeah, he's pretty particular about the tools he uses. From what I understand, he is. Yeah, and then about the size, I think he drew it pretty much close to print size, um, which is that was his preference. Did you draw your pages in this uh, close to the the same as the Scott Pilgrim originals, which are were very small? No, these are bigger actually. They're um, they're on eleven by fourteen, and since the aspect ratio is different, uh, they're pretty much like filling those eleven by fourteens. Okay, and you had uh, 
and wasn't Jason Jason Jayfish was down there for a while to work on it too? Yeah, towards the end he stayed here for um, about five weeks, and uh, yeah, we were just working side by side, like and going insane side by side. Uh, so that was like that was another like super rewarding part of the process because really. Uh, or anyway, go go on. Oh, I just like as we got later in the book, like or as we were filling in like little details throughout. Um, you know, we just had ideas. We were just shooting shit all day, and and we would add visual stuff or like. I ended up rewriting the whole ending, in like the last week and a half, and we we redid the whole like final encounter scene. Um, and just like just ideas would just crop up, or then there's little things like um, there's kind of like a painting above Katie's bed, mm-hmm. and it, like, it changes throughout the book, and like me and Jason kind of came up with that whole system, and um, that was really fun. Yeah, it was interesting reading it, and it's like I noticed him and his girlfriend showing up at the restaurant a lot too, which is something that people that don't know him probably will get a very different reading experience. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> they're like, who is this weirdo? Yeah. Um, it, it gave it really gave an idea like it was a like it felt like you guys were having fun on the book. Yeah, we definitely were. That's very much a like make it or break it situation when you're working so intensely. It's either you guys work really well together, or you end up hating each other. Yeah, we it was very harmonious. Like, and because towards the end it was like sixteen hour days. Like we were fucking stir crazy. Um. The day after we finished it, we all went to Disneyland. Like, we brought his girlfriend down, and like, it was just like, it was great. Um, now what was the choice to make a changing to the ending, so like, far into the game? Um, I don't know. It's just I think like when I'm that deep into a book, like you know, two hundred and eighty pages in or whatever, it's like my brain is working on a whole other level that is really hard to access otherwise. And so I would just have better ideas. <laughs> so, um, like, I had roughed it, and I think I redrew about, like, maybe 16 pages of the ending because I just came up with something that was visually and thematically more, I don't know, stronger, I guess. So, right, yeah, full... is... Go ahead. I remember you saying that in Scott Pilgrim, you really were adamant about sticking to your original ending that you came up with. Um, I don't know... I don't know if that's true. What, that was my impression of anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, would part of that also be with Scott Pilgrim? There was so much expectation for an ending, um, where with this you're not dealing with expectations so much because it's all together. Yeah, with this I just had to make it kind of of a piece and and you know satisfying. So that's that's really just what happened. Like I was literally like lying in bed in the middle of the night after working for 16 hours and I just like it all came to me all at once like this new 16 pages and um, I like roughed it in as quickly as possible and we drew it like towards the end we were like we were getting pages done like basically without even knowing we were getting pages done like we'd be like oh that page got done oh wow right (laughs) I know that know that feeling yeah you've broken your brain yeah exactly now you're about to do a pretty massive tour. Um, you're gonna be. I don't even have the list of places. A lot of places. Oh yeah, yeah. Like, before yeah. you're talking about the book too, which is perfect. 
Um, yeah, I'm I'm gonna be all over the place around the time this podcast out. Um, L.A., San Francisco, Portland, Seattle, not Vancouver. That's uh, fine. <laughs> um, Toronto, Montreal, Halifax, New York, and then I go to England, and I'm um, doing London and Edinburgh. I'm doing Nottingham. I'm supposed to do Manchester and Leeds and Dublin. So that's like pretty extensive. I've never done that much traveling in that. You know, it's like a month, so it's it's a lot of cities. Are you kind of taking a break from working on a new comic project, or kind of like how are you flexing your brain comic-wise right now? Uh, I'm not flexing my brain. I'm letting it rot. <laughs> uh, it's like, I mean, I just moved and like I've kind of just, uh, I don't know. I was really drained after finishing this book, so. Um, I've barely, I've just begun, like, thinking about things. I mean, like, like before, I have, like, an idea that I, I know I want to do for my next big project, um, an idea that's been, like, you know, growing for five years or whatever, but um, I'm still probably a couple years off from starting that. So I, I, um, I want to do some short stories. I've never done that before, short comics, I mean. Um, I know Brandon's done a lot of those, but um, I've barely done any, so I th- I think that would be fun and we'd do like a collection one day. Yeah, well, you've done a, you've done a couple, right? I mean, you did the uh, what was that? There was a superhero book that I remember you doing a short story in. Oh yeah, the Monica Beetle story. Yeah, um, yeah that ended up getting collected in the uh, Scott Pilgrim color edition because it was just like drawn around the same time, and I figured that made sense. Um, but yeah, I've never like I've just like. I want to play in like different genres and different styles and just kind of fart around and try new things. And you know, like that, that I want to like get something done, get that like feeling of accomplishment because I'm tired of like working on projects for three years at a time. Yeah. It's, it's really nice to hear you say that. Cause I feel like there's so many American cartoonists that get locked into like, it's like a lot, of, it seems like you're, it's like the backwards thing where, uh, a lot of people start out doing short stories and having all this fun and trying out different styles, and then they get locked into their thing and they have to draw, you know, their million Tintin books or whatever, and that's the rest of their life. Yeah, yeah, I don't want that to be me. Like, I, you know, I do want to do another series eventually, um, but I, I definitely want to play a bit first. I need to, like, rekindle my kind of love for comics. Yeah, and that's something that, uh, I, I mean, I think about that a lot, about how important it is to 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 continue to build a relationship with comics and not like there's nothing that can like kind of burn out your love of comics more than doing exactly what you love all the time and having people fawn over it just strange yeah i know it's it's like crazy but true it's like i made this book and i'm like it took me years i'm super satisfied with it i think it like came out just the way i wanted it to but at the same time it was just like all of my energy all my power went into it so yeah and then you have to go around and talk about it when you yeah. know you it's like your brain should be like ideally if you had handlers they would just keep you in a like a you'd just be in a you'd just float in a pool of Epsom salts for like a week now. Yeah, exactly. That sounds like a good life. That would be great. Yeah, let's set that up for your next door. <laughs> Epsom salt tour. Well, They'll just think- like, wheel me around and people can come stare. Is it something that you actively like do you have something that you do to re energize yourself about comics when you know that you're kind of spent? Like, do you do binge read or anything like that? Uh, I I don't know right now. I have a lot of stuff to read. 
um, like an intimidating amount of stuff to read and stuff to reread. Um, I've been wanting to reread Ranma because like a lot of my younger friends are reading it right now. Oh, so have you read Inuyasha ever? No, not really. Yeah, I haven't. I was talking to someone that that was all they'd read. It was a younger cartoonist, and and uh, and I'm scared because you know it's like like for me Takahashi exists in the '80s. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I've I've um, all of Maison Koku in front of me too. Like, I need to read that. I've never read all of it, um, and I always want to reread like Phoenix and like Kira and like you know the classics and like all my fucking X Men volumes. Um, but, and then I have like book books to read because I like reading like, I mean these days I read more nonfiction book books because I just want to like learn more about shit. For some reason I kept thinking about about Murakami books when I was reading this. Have you read any of his stuff? No, I still haven't. I bought one that you recommended like a few years ago, and I still haven't even read it. I think that's just my limited uh, idea of of non science fiction novels too. I'm like I read, <laughs> yeah. I read four of them. This one reminds me most of this one. <laughs> Yeah, it shapes your whole worldview. Yeah. Um, well, thanks for taking the time to chat with us today, Brian. Thank you. I really appreciate you coming and joining me and Brandon. Um, I very much enjoyed Seconds. It's uh, it's really interesting to see kind of how you've gone in a really nice different direction from Scott Pilgrim. Like it feels like definitely like a I don't know, a further extension of yourself. Yeah, it was nice. Before we did this interview, me and Robin were talking on the phone, and it was like, oh, cool, he, he did a better book than Scott Pilgrim. That's, that's, <laughs> that takes some weight off. <laughs> I didn't say those words. That was no, my impression. Because when I read it, it was like, you know, it's, it does feel like a more adult book, and it does feel like you're in advancing as a cartoonist, which is exciting because it's not like... Because it's, it's daunting to do something that big and have the readership be expecting so much. I'm interested in seeing how people react to it. Yeah, me too. I mean, I th- I think, I think, well, I don't know. I don't know what to think, but it, I'm sure that it'll, it'll get some negativity from people who have different expectations um, or who've built it up too much. But I I feel like I made like a kind of strong enough work that it'll it'll like kind of deflect those expectations a little bit. It really is like its own self, and it's like confident in what it is. So um, I hope people can accept it on those terms. Yeah, certainly. All right. Thank you so much, Brian. Thanks, guys. Yeah.